So like one day I was at like 99.6 kilometers and I was broken and the guys were like, okay, you need to stop. I was like in 400 meters. <laughs> I was like, then I will stop. <laughs> hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Christian Ultra podcast. Please you tuning in again. Today's guest is Carla Molinaro and she is a record breaking ultra runner based here in the United Kingdom. Just having recently got back from America, I sat on my couch and watched her run 100k over there, um, part of the Carbon X2 project by Hoka. It was pretty cool. Carla's also a top 10 finisher at Comrades Ultra Marathon. She did that in 2018. She actually holds the world record, which she completed last year for Le Jog. That's Land's End to John O'Groats, 12 days, 30 minutes and 14 seconds. And that takes up the bulk of our conversation today. We get into the details of what it was like to be out on the road and run well over 100k every day, sleep, uh, eat, sleep, wake up and do it again. You know, so um, please enjoy my conversation with Carla Molinari. Yeah, um, so you're an ultra runner based in Britain and you, you just got back from a 100k championship in America. And uh, but let's go back to the start. Um where did your passion for running begin? Probably began when I was at school and started running around like the school fields. Um, <laughs> when I was about 14, 15, doing the usual like 800, 1500 meter cross country. And then yeah. from there I joined um, the local running club. Like my PE teacher was like, why don't you join a club? And I was like, okay. Yeah. Um, so got into like the club's um, kind of scheme and then yeah it kind of progressed from there I diverted off for a little bit and actually ended up doing triathlon for 10 years when I went to uni a little and bit then, yeah, 10 years. yeah yeah a little bit and then like being a triathlete seems like such a weird thing now I'm like can't even really remember doing it um, and then yeah got back into running properly about six years ago and I've been running ever since since then yeah brilliant yeah i was looking on your website and you yeah i think you you said that you just love the simplicity of running and you hung up your wetsuit so that was it yeah yeah I have, a, I have a i have a similar thing that i didn't get deep into triathlon but i had a go and i did ironman but it was just so nice to just leave the bike leave the wetsuit and just put, go running so easy you know i know like when you think like for my weekends i used to be like okay where's a lake where can I ride to what do I need where now I'm like I, you can chuck your shoes on and you can run from anywhere and you okay. don't even have to think you're just like just done easy done yeah cool. and and how have you uh have you been predominantly trails a mix of both or road over the past six years I I, I see you've done a mix of both but what do you lean towards I guess I probably started off more like road and track running um, with a bit of cross country and then as I've kind of gone over that six years I started to get into trails and the longer distance stuff and now I like anything really I do anything from 5k road races to 100k trail um, mm. and everything in between and I like I like being able to do all of it and not yeah. just have to stick to one distance. Yeah I was really in, impressed actually with I was having a bit of a research and one of your training days is four times 5k. I mean, you know, with it, with a, um, I take it that 5k is kind of faster than half marathon pace. Yeah. They were about, we kind of like progressed through them. So they started at like 20 minutes, 30 seconds and got down to about 19 minutes. Yeah. It's a horror. It's disgusting, but it's such a good session. It makes no, you so fit. Yeah, I know you were saying that you you really enjoyed it. So um, no, I'd never heard of that. I thought that's I like that anyway. Um, well, you know, you're also a record holder as well of Le Jog. So you started um, at Lands End and ran all the way to John O'Groats up in Scotland, um, and, and that's what you say you're most known for. But you've actually also uh, done Comrade and got a gold medal there, Comrade's Ultra Marathon in South Africa. 
Yeah, so I've done Comrades four times. Um, and for like anyone that doesn't know it, it's like the biggest ultra race in the world. You get like 20,000 people at the start line, which is just mental because you normally at a start of an ultra get like 200 people. <laughs> so all of a sudden you've got like 20,000 other runners. And then, yeah, if you come in the top 10, you get a gold medal, which is actually solid gold, which is pretty cool. Wow. So like, yeah, you, you got top 10 then. I mean, that's, um, that's something, isn't it? What you, uh, what was your time there for that one? I did six hours, 50 minutes. Yeah. That's... But like a little bit before that run, I tried with some guys, we tried to run from Cape town to the start of comrades. So yeah. we had done like 900 kilometers in the three weeks before the race, which is probably I don't know if it's the best idea I've ever had, but it was quite fun. I want to hear about it. That sounds like a kind of um, off the beaten track adventure. Do you want to talk about that and what it involved and what it was all about? So, yeah, I was like looking at like multi-day running and I got in touch with this guy called Dave, um, who was in South Africa. And because he had been like running around the world with a buggy, like literally a child's buggy. Um, And I'd got in touch with him and then he was like, oh, what are you doing in May? And I was like, nothing, why? And he's like, oh, I'm putting some people together to try and run 20 comrades in 20 days. And on the last day, we do the actual race. And I was like, yeah, all right. Like, so this was like in November and I didn't really think much more about it. I was like, oh, it can't be that bad. I was very wrong. Um, <laughs> and we got out to South Africa. There was me and five other guys, um, Alex, a guy from America, Dave from South Africa, Mike from South Africa, Kurt and Rog, they were all South African and me. And yeah, we set out trying to do 90K a day. And yeah, we, I had no idea what I was letting myself in for. and was like so ridiculously underprepared, all of us were, that we managed, I managed to get to day five before I tore my quad. Um, a couple of the other guys got to day six And then, yeah, so by day six, no one kept on going on with the 90K a day. And then we all kind of had to adjust our goals. And mine was my parents were coming out from the UK to watch the race. So I was like, I'm going to try and do as much distance as I can in the next two weeks. But I have to get to that start line or my mother might kill me for like flying to South Africa to watch me like not run. Um, So yeah, it was a bit, we found this like physio in this random village in South Africa. I'd like phoned her. I was like, can you see us? She was like, oh, well, I was going to take the day off work, but all right. We got to her house. She had a broken leg. So it was like doing physio on us, like pushing herself around on this like chair in her room. She's like, do you want one of these (laughs) electric machines? I was like, yep. Do you want this potion? I was like, just give me everything. Cause we said to her, like, we just need to keep on running. So yeah. it was just like whatever you could give us to help. And then, yeah, we just slowly could start running again. Like you're in a world of pain, um, but it was quite fun staying in random places along the way, running through all these, yeah. Insane. Cool. I, I, I knew you were adventurous because you've done a jog and you do ultra, but that kind of, that's another level. You know, that's definitely someone who's prepared not to wear a race bib and step into the complete unknown. Ah, oh, kudos. That's that sounds really good fun. I bet, I bet you'll never forget it, you know, for sure. Um, and, and so so then you your quad had healed, healed by the time you entered Comrades then. So it was very sore, um, but luckily we did loads of like taping things and doing stuff like this, like you'll know from all your runs, like the pain is just part of it and it's whether you can, you just got to embrace it. So like on the day of the race, the thing was like the week before the race, I had run 60 kilometers, like this Monday before the race, I'd done 50. So all the distances in my head were like, so like so near that I knew what I was expecting that on the day it just hurt, but it had been hurting for three weeks. So it was all right. And yeah. Yeah. I just, as soon as the gun went, I just ran and I didn't look at my watch. I didn't know what time I was running. I didn't know how fast I was running. Yeah. I just like enjoyed it. And I think yeah. sometimes having like, I had no pressure and absolutely no expectation that 
it was quite fun. It was like when we got, when you got to the, to register for the race a couple of days before I had like this band in my um, pack that said like elite start. And I was like, that's ridiculous. Like I can't even really walk. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was quite funny, but yeah, somehow pulled it off. Not too really? sure how. <laughs> nice. Uh, I'm seriously impressed. I think everyone listening will be as well. Um, and, and then um, with uh, comrades, there's the barbecues. They call them bries, I think. Is that right? Do you, yeah. do, you, do you ever stop and have yourself like a chicken burger or something? Or No, but you really want to because they smell <laughs> delicious. Like as you're running, you're just like, yeah. oh, that smells so good. <laughs> yeah. And everyone's like all the spectators are just like having a day on party where they just sit on the side of the road and bry and drink and yeah. it just it looks way more fun than what we're doing <laughs> yeah I, I suppose it's just um in your face isn't it as you you going and and you know you can look forward to it afterwards though and enjoy it even more when you've run you know that kind of distance um you look like you had a really great year I've, i'm on again on your website with your race schedule and it starts off with january the first 2020 um have i got that right was that all last year um and mm -hmm. then yeah, and, and you got like a lot of podiums there and even uh, course records on ca uh, country to capital. And uh, you, so you got, you even got a first in the uh, marathon, the Val Marathon, where's that? That's in South Africa. Okay, so what is your marathon PB then and when did you get it? Um, my marathon PB is 251 mm -hmm. and I got it in, oh, 2014. Yeah. So I haven't and, had like a proper bash at it again since, which I might I might do in October this year at London. Okay, that's exciting. Because you also um, said something in a previous interview about people saying, oh, you're past the age of um, being able to perform at the top. And you completely disagree with that notion and believe that um, we, we rarely do we actually reach our limits. So, and I still believe from you know, in my opinion, that you haven't reached your limit yet. What is your belief on reaching our limits and so on with age and things? Yeah, I think, you know, there are some sports where like age is a factor, but I think especially in ultra running, like every time you do an ultra race, like you learn something more, you can see how you can tweak your training, you know, that that ability to be able to like suffer and push your body further a little bit each time. Like when, for example, when I did that run from Cape Town to Comrades, that was 90 kilometers a day. And I was like, I finished that thinking, oh my God, like I don't actually know if doing this is possible. And then I went and did La Jog last summer where I managed 110 kilometers a day and showed myself that it was possible. So I think by doing these little things and like failing along the way, you actually learn that you can do awesome things and you can continue to push your body and improve. And even you kind of mentioned it earlier, like I raced 100K a few weeks ago and I know from that race that I can run an hour quicker than I did. I just have to get everything right on the day. And I think those little seeds of confidence that you like plant in yourself um, the more that you do and the more experience you have is really exciting because you are way more capable and, and loads of people have showed that like, you know, there's lots of ultra runners that have done well into their forties and into their fifties. And, you know, there's people that I coach that they're like, Oh, but I'm over the hill. And I'm like, but why? Because someone has said to you that you need to be 30 to race in a marathon team. I mean, look at, um, like Joe Pavey, for example, who's like going for like, I think it's her seventh Olympics like this year in her late forties, which, you know, to me, I'm just like, why should you have to stop competing when you're 30? Yeah. Like, do you think it's important to, um, sorry to cut you there. Do you, do you think it's important to actually put yourself an experience failure um, and, and to do things where you may fail? Yeah, 100%. Like you have to, otherwise you're never going to learn. Like if races always go the right way, I don't think you're ever fully reaching your potential because, you know, you're just like taking these things off and you're not thinking outside of the box of like how you can improve and how you can do better. Where if you fail, you can look backwards and be like, okay, why did that happen? How can I make myself better? 
how can I improve my training, my nutrition, my strength and conditioning, my mindset. And I think it's really important, like, and it, it's not a failure because it's all, it's all learning, but you need those experiences. Like you need things to go wrong. It's like a child when they start to walk, you know, just because they can't get up the first time, they don't stop trying, you know, they keep on doing it again and again and again until they're running and smashing into walls. <laughs> and I yeah. think, you yeah. know, pushing your body through that is exactly the same. Yeah, I suppose it's a bit like saying, oh, look at little Tommy, he's failing, he can't walk. Actually, <laughs> you know, you like, make me think, yeah. actually, society's, um, you know, uh, take on failure, we probably shouldn't really use that word. Like you said, uh, learning experience is a much more positive way of uh, saying that you didn't get what you wanted to achieve, but you've had an experience where you learned and therefore you're now in a better position to go after it again and more likely to achieve. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, who invented the word failure? Let's get that one out of the dictionary. <laughs> um, I'd like to talk to you about the specifics of um, Le Jog. Um, and what was the record that you were going after? So, um, the so, yeah, Sharon's record was 12 and a half days. Wow. So really close then. Um, well, you took 12 hours off it then or so. Ten and a half hours off. Okay, yeah, yeah, and 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 it was that the lady in the for people listening. If you want to go and type in Carla Molinaro, um, there's a YouTube video as well. And is that the lady who came out to you and saw you on the on the road? Yeah, that is like when I first ran past her, she was standing in a layby, and I was yeah. like, oh god, that's Sharon. Like I was so scared, like quite intimidated. I was like, she's come to watch me. <laughs> And what, and what day was this as well, by the way? It was like day six running. We were in the Lake District running. I was just about, no, I had just come off Shap, like okay. this big hill in the lake. So you're good halfway into it though, yeah. Yeah. And then she just like watched me as I ran past. I was like, okay, don't know what to make of that. And then we had stopped about a couple of K down the road and she came over and bought me a cake and came to say hi and then ran with me that afternoon, which was very right. cool. Yeah. Did she, um, if you don't mind me asking, kind of what was the conversation about and what did she have to say about your effort? Yeah, we were just chatting about like, I guess I said to her, like, I remember I was like, did your legs hurt when you did this? And she was like, no, I was fine. I was like, oh, <laughs> uh. <laughs> but as you know, like you when you do these things, you quickly forget how much it actually hurt. Like at the time, like I know when I did it, it was ridiculous, but I can't, you can't actually remember that pain. It's like this really weird feeling. Um, so I think she had just forgotten the pain. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I was like, oh God, but she is a machine and does like long runs all the time. Yeah. Uh, and it was the second, she had done the jog twice. So, which was both ways, which is pretty cool. How um, long, um, it's called, is is it, Juggle. Juggle the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. I only just worked that out today, by the way. <laughs> um, so uh, what, how long had her record stood before you broke it? She only got it last year. Okay. Um, okay. And I, I take it you'd done some research. Who was the the record holder before? Um, uh, Mimi Anderson. And she must have had it a while then, I guess. Um, I think Mimi had it for about seven years maybe yeah, that, that's a good stretch of time yeah yeah wow so you broke a uh, sharon's record quite fresh <laughs> that but was, yeah the only good thing is she had got her certificate so it's fine like she had had proof that she had at least she got that and i didn't steal it before she had it ratified <laughs> yeah yeah that's true it's not like yeah. she's got to burn her certificate now you know yeah. <laughs> still hopefully up on the wall uh let's talk about what um you said that when you were standing or about to start comrades, you didn't believe you could do it after doing what you'd done previously, you know, that really mm -hmm. long run. Did, did, so in other words, you're standing on the edge of the unknown and then you do it and you amaze yourself. How many moments did you have, which were similar to that during the jog? And could you speak about those moments of doubt? I don't think, in the jog, I had any moments of doubt. Like I knew that I would do it mainly because I had done all my planning and I'd given myself like a 24 hour buffer. So I had a very big window. 
Um, and I knew I was eating into that time, but that's exactly what that was there for. So I'd never got to the point on the run where I was like, get hit in the edge of the record and had to panic. So hmm. I think that was quite nice. And I had that luxury within my planning that I could, I could put that in. Um, you know, maybe if we had to carry on a few days more and the window was getting near to an hour or 30 minutes, I might have started to, you know, question if I could get to the end. But because I never had that, like it hurt, but I knew I could finish. I think my team probably thought differently. Like one of the girls in my team about halfway through was like, I think you need to have a 12 hour break. And I was like, why? She's like, cause your legs hurt. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, trust me, 12 hours at this point is not gonna make a difference. The only way to stop the pain is to stop running for two weeks. Like yeah. when you're in that, like 12, it's not gonna do anything. So yeah, I thought she was ridiculous for telling me to stop. And she thought I was ridiculous for wanting to carry on. So. Are you guys talking now? Have you settled? settled? Yeah, yeah, no, it was, it was just like, I was just like, no. And she's like, why? <laughs> I'm like, I was like, I don't want to add 12 hours onto this. Yeah. <laughs> I want to get it done. Yeah, get it done. What was your start time and finish time? And um, did you adjust that based on if when you hit your daily goals? Yeah, so I set myself three goals each day. So it was either to reach the like distance target that I had set myself, like I'd broken the days up um, or to um, run until 10 o'clock at night or to run a hundred kilometers. So I had to hit one of them um, mm -hmm. before I could stop running. Um, and I would start at 5 a.m. in the morning. So I'd start at five and I'd go through normally, well, on the first couple of days, I finished at like seven, which like tricked me into a false sense of security. And then by the end, you're finishing at like half nine, 10. Yeah. But having those three goals was nice because, you know, back to that like thing of failure, it never meant that I wasn't hitting a goal. It was just like, I could just, I could pick which one I wanted to achieve. And if I got one of them, I would still get the overall goal of mm. the run. So like one day I was at like 99.6 kilometers and I was broken and the guys were like, okay, you need to stop. I was like in 400 meters. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, then I will stop. <laughs> I suppose it's, it, it's a, uh, it's just not having a kink in your armor, you know, just keeping that resilience and that, okay, I'm going to, I say I'm going to do this and you do it and it just builds um, the strength, the mental strength, you know, um, what, how quick was your turnaround with wake up from literally when you wake up to when you start running and also when you stopped running to when you actually went to sleep? So it was pretty much the same both times. So I'd give myself about an hour. So in the morning I would wake up at 4am and just try and get my body moving again. We'd do a bit of sports massage, a bit of stretching, um, have breakfast. Um, and then depending on where we were, basically I said at the end of each day, if we were within 15 minutes of like a hotel or a B&B, we would go there and sleep. Otherwise we'd sleep in the van. Yeah. Um, so there was also, if we had to travel, we would use that time to like travel to the start and then at the end of the day, it was quite good. By the end, the guys would like have dinner and stuff ready in the van. So if we had to drive somewhere, I could start eating whilst I was in the van, get myself showered and sorted, get to bed. And then, yeah, probably, well, try and be asleep by 11 p.m. But you never sleep because you feel like someone smashed you with a bat. So... <laughs> What uh, what was the difference between when you what, did you say van? Was it like a camper van or a van with a bed? What was it? So we had a little camper van that I was meant to sleep in, which was like a VW van. Um, yeah. but, and then like a motorhome for the rest of the crew, which had like nice comfy beds in. But they would like they would be cooking and stuff in there, getting all the food ready and the little van. Oh, it was just a bit rubbish because it was so small, like you couldn't stand up in it. So you're having to like lie down to get dressed and uh, just a bit of a pain. Like it was fine. But when they were like one, this one guy, um, Keith ended up sponsoring like the hotel rooms for the rest of the way. And when he was like, 
I've got you sorted you out with some money to like stay somewhere decent. I was like, oh my God, you're a legend. (laughs) And for me, like I know some people like, you know, I think when Sharon and Mimi did it, they just stayed in their van the whole time. But it was quite nice, like just having a shower at the end of the day. For me, it kind of like ended the day before starting the next one. And I just felt so much better. Yeah. Yeah. When I was on the um, Appalachian trial with Carol Sabay, he pretty much had an idea um, by midday if we'd be sleeping in the tent or if we'd be sleeping in a uh, motel or something. And just having that motel, um, you know, on the horizon is a huge morale booster. It wasn't oft, it wasn't every night, but, you know, so there is a difference, isn't there? Um, yeah. And and so you did sleep in the small van then. You didn't sleep in the motorhome. You, you, you uh, slept in the little VW. Yeah, mainly because like, doing something like this, you have to have a support crew. Like there's no way you can do it on your own. And the thing is they, they actually work so hard. They're up before you in the morning because they're getting breakfast and stuff ready. They're going to sleep after you because they're like packing everything away. And it just made sense that they had like the big space to get everything ready in. And I didn't want to be in there. And then they're chatting about the next day and, they're worried about waking me up and stuff like that. It was, it was just a bit of a pain. So it was better that I was just like putting the little van in the corner. Oh, can we just say how giving and nice you are, you know, just uh, it's, it's nice that way. Yeah. I, I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> no, that... I don't think they thought I would, they were just like, I tried to explain to the guys like how hard being like a crew member is. And they're Before like, they started. Yeah. yeah. And they're like, Oh yeah, it'll be all right. Like I'm like, and then halfway through, I could just see them like they were so tired, like it's bloody hard work. It's harder than running, like running. All I have to do is run. Like yeah. They have to think about where to park, where to drive, what the route is, where we're going, where are we stopping, where to buy food, like getting my like diva requests when I like found something I wanted. <laughs> Actually, I think this is a good time to highlight the crew because you're right. I mean, you know, you were the runner, but come on, let's uh hear about the crew and uh, speak a little bit about them because yeah, they, they need recognition as well in something like this. Who, we, yeah. who was your team? Yeah. So hundred percent, like if you're going for a record like this, like you can't do it on your own. Like, you know, you can, you can go and do it five days longer, but you can't do it in a record time. So I ended up having my sister, Andrea, who was there for the whole time. She basically, she said it felt like she had a child for 12 days helping me like get dressed and feed me and she was she was driving the little van and would stop every 10 kilometers along the route to like resupply me and she was doing all the social media stuff as well um and if anyone wanted to join on the run she would tell them where to meet us and that that was cool so her job she actually did probably like the most out of everyone I would say no offense to anyone else um and then I had my brother Mark who came out for the first five days to cook um and then he actually ended up having FOMO after leaving that he hired a van and came up to Scotland for the last few days with his family which Brilliant. was quite cool yeah. And then the other chefs were Alicia and Mark. We ended up having three Marks on the team. It was very complicated. Um, so between the three of them, they each had a few days where they were cooking for the crew um, dinner every night. And then I had Scouse and Dave um, who cycled with me. So they were on a bike, one of them at all times, like navigating the route making sure I was safe. Um, if I needed anything, they'd let the guys in the van know. Um, and yeah, just keeping me company. Scouse probably had a slightly easier job because he got to ride with me in the mornings when I was a bit happier. And then by the afternoons, I couldn't be asked to speak anymore. So then Dave had to like put up with me not wanting to talk to him. He's yeah. like, how you doing? I'm like, fine. And I felt really bad because, yeah, he never got nice, Carla. He got like, I'm tired. I just want to finish running at the end of the day. And then we had um, Mark, Mark number three, who did was doing like sports massage for me and also filming. And he's the one who made the film Every Step, which you can see on YouTube. Mm. And then um, Andy, the doctor, who wasn't meant to come, but again, he got FOMO. So he came out with a guy called Mike, um 
after I think about three days, um, Mike was doing all the Guinness World Record stuff, like recording all the data, because um, that was like a pretty important role, but could only get there after three days. And then Andy, yeah, it was a bit of a blessing in disguise having him because I actually ended up getting a shin infection in my skin, in my uh, skin infection in my shin, um, which he took a picture of and sent to his doctor mates. And one of them just happened to pick it up where we initially thought it was a muscle injury. Um, so he could quickly get me onto antibiotics, which I think if he wasn't there, that whole process, we, it would still have happened, but it probably would have taken 24 hours longer. And then God knows what would have happened in the time. Yeah. And then, yeah, my parents popped up a couple of times bringing like supplies and stuff, which was, which was pretty cool. And yeah. And then also Tom, my physio who helped me like get ready before and after as yeah. well. So yeah, it's quite like, a big team. As they say, it takes a village. It really does, you know, um, all these people, all these roles, all this, you know, um, hours spent. And then you're kind of the spearhead of the arrow, you know, and just get getting that record. Um, well, what uh, maybe it'd be great to talk about nutrition and you say have breakfast in the morning. So what was breakfast? So I'd have porridge pretty much every day. So with like berries and coconut and stuff like that um and about two cups of tea and then yeah. I was good to go I had to have yeah. a couple of cups of tea and, and then from then on I would eat every 30 minutes throughout the day mm -hmm. um, okay yeah yeah um what did you I, eat what were you eating every 30 minutes um if you can imagine like an Iceland buffet basically that so oh, like that's terrible mini, yeah <laughs> Iceland <laughs> Yeah, mini pancakes, sausage rolls, samosas, um, bananas, yogurt, um, nuts. Um, one day I tried to eat a quiche. That didn't end well. I thought that would be a really good idea. It wasn't. Um, and then at about 10 o'clock every morning, I'd have a fried egg sandwich. So I really looked forward to that every day. Yeah. Um, lunchtime I would have some pasta or uh, whatever they a toasted sandwich or something yeah and then dinner again pasta pizza something like that okay. but yeah I was eating so much throughout the day that like I never had a dip in my energy like at any point along the run mm. um, which was pretty good and um, with the uh, cyclists carrying the food and then you would just every 30 minutes grab some of it or something like that? I actually had, I was wearing a running vest. So yeah. I had a vest with my food in it. And then every 10K or so we would see the van and then I'd swap out my water bottles and get new water and get new food. Um, like one of the guys was like, oh, I don't think you should have a vest. It's like extra weight. And I was like, I didn't want to have to like keep turning to the cyclist every time I wanted something and I wanted to be able to control it myself. And, you know, you're running so slowly that like an extra kilo in weight because of your pack is like not really an issue. Yeah, it's probably a lot easier just to twist your neck and drink out your bottle. It takes less energy than the thought process of, oh, now I need to indicate that I need a drink. Yeah. exactly and I just set like a timer on my watch that just beeped to tell me when to eat and drink so I felt like I was like fully in control of all of that and I didn't want to have to leave it to someone else because then I think you're like oh this road's busy I can't ask for something to eat now or you know at least I could just do it whenever I wanted yeah did you have anything that did fester in your mind and eventually you just had to get it off your chest, whether it was the way you were feeling emotionally or something, some interaction with the crew? Yeah, there was. So we had said from the beginning that anyone could have joined me to come and run with me, like at any point. But kind of like what I said earlier is I found that after about five o'clock in the evening, I just, you'd been talking to people all day like you've been running now for 12 hours. Um, it's like the last final push. And I just didn't want anyone to come and run with me. And I felt really bad because we had just, it was on day three when we crossed over into Wales and these guys had come to run with me. And, you know, they're saying like, do your legs hurt? I'm like, yep. They're like, are you tired? I'm like, yes. Like, and I was just getting irritated by these questions. Like I shouldn't have been, but you're just tired. You're a bit emotional. Um, everything hurts. 
So we then said, my sister then put out a thing saying, please come and run with Carla before 5 p.m. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it was quite good that I like recognized that and we were able to change it. And there was a couple of times when a couple of friends came to join me later, but it's easier when it's a friend. Like when it's a friend, I can say, look, I don't actually want to talk to you, but it'd be really cool if you can chat to Scouse on the bike because it's a nice distraction, like Mm -hmm. hearing you guys talk, but you can't really say that to a stranger that's come to meet you and be like, sorry, yeah. mate, like, I, I don't want to talk to you. Um, so yeah, it was, it was quite good. Like recognizing that. Um, yeah, that's a skill. Well done for recognizing that. Cause that, that can eventually things like, as they say, it's the pebble in the shoe, isn't it? And, yeah. and if, unless you recognize something like that, it can bring you down, but no, you, you coped with it. Yeah. yeah. Any, any other it, things? Yeah, I think you just, you do have to look at that. And like, as hard as it is when people, you just like, please, you know, you can help me in the day, but in the evening you're not helping. And I think like everyone kind of was like, yeah, okay, cool. We'll come meet you earlier. And then anything else? Um, So there was one bit where our route actually got like, got diverted. Like there were some locals that came along that knew a shorter route um so I think I saw a bit of that in the video maybe yeah maybe um and yeah so the guys like on my bike like ended up like changing the route that I went because of these people and I I kind of I was like I planned the whole route so I plotted everything that we were doing and I knew why we were doing it Mm. so then we got to like this one um one of the stops in the day and I said to the crew I was like show me where we are on the map and they'd like zoomed out. I was like, zoom in. So they like zoomed in. And I was like, why am I off the route? Mm. And they're like, oh, because a local told us that this was a better way to go. And I lost my shit. Like, yeah. I got really upset. Um, mainly because I was like, I've planned this route. It is the shortest way to get there. Like someone else, you know, we had been running in this environment I had accepted the risk that, yes, we were running on busy roads. I was fully aware of that. And it was a risk that I was willing to take and the cyclists that were cycling with me were willing to take. And if they didn't want to take it, it was fine. I would carry on going on my own. Mm -hmm. But when people were looking in, they all wanted to, like, put in their five cents worth. And I think the crew were tired at this point and they were like, okay, cool, we'll change it. So I was like, there are some things that I don't need to know, like what shop you're going to buy food from. Literally, I don't care. But if you are changing the route, which is like fundamentally the thing that is going to get me from A to B, and it's the thing that I've had to plan in like the most detail, Mm -hmm. you need to tell me. So I was like, they're like, oh, but we didn't want to let you know. And I'm like, but you didn't need to change the route. There was one time we needed to change the route because the road was no longer there and another time because of roadworks and then it was fine but I was like you can't let external people come in and change what we're doing um just because for them it doesn't seem like the right thing to do mm. so yeah. Yeah, I did I did lose my shit that day but how long was it so you cleared it up with the crew and how long was it until that settled within you because the it's these little things that stay with you for a while were you able to get back into the zone you know Oh yeah, it was fine. Like I find with that, it's like, guys, this is like the scenario, sort it out. And then we pull back on the page. And I think with things like this, everyone is tired. Like everyone is like on an emotional knife edge and you have to be able to just be like, to get it off, to like get upset, to have a cry. And then you're like, okay, cool, done. Yeah, it's part of the process. Yeah, like every day I cried. Like, and, but it was more just like this release of emotion. It was like, I'd cry for five minutes and then I was like, okay, cool. Let's yeah. carry on. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. You're just like, okay. I don't know. It's uh, just clearing out the system. Sounds, yeah. sounds pretty good. I, you know, I mean, so as well as a record holder of, so this isn't just an interview about the jog. This is, you know, finding out about Carla Molinaro. And um, you've also recently come back from America. So you are over there as part of the Carbon, have I got this right? The Carbon X2 project to try to break. I think you said everyone had different goals, but essentially, could you outline what that was all about and what was your role in it? 
Yeah, so Hoka were releasing their new carbon shoe, the Carbon X2. Um, and a couple of years ago, they had put on a similar event to this. Um, and then this one was in January in Arizona, where the men were going, were trying to break the world record for 100 kilometers. Um, and the women, I was trying to break um, the British record, and the rest of us were all trying to break our various um, national records. Um, just because the women's world record is ridiculous. Um, so <laughs> yeah. uh, set by a Japanese lady, like it's incredibly fast. Um, so yeah, we all got invited by Hoka to head over to the US to go and yeah, try and try and run quickly over a hundred kilometers, which was exciting. Yeah. Um, had you raced in the US before? No, I hadn't. Um, I had done one very weird um, event in America when I was in the army. We went out there to do a thing called the Sandhurst Cup where we had to like run around and row in a lake and do a half marathon and do an assault course. But that was the only thing I'd done over there. So, yeah, Hold was... on a second. We got to rewind. You were in the army. I want to hear about this. So <laughs> let's, let's hear about um, your army experience. When was it and what what was it like? <laughs> yeah, so I joined the army straight from university. Um, so went to Sandhurst. Uh, did... Cardiff University, no? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was at Cardiff and then, yeah, joined the army. And then, yeah, actually first, um, when I first left basic training, I was in the artillery um, blowing stuff up and then realised <laughs> that's probably not the best life skill to have. Um, so I switched to logistics, yeah. um, and then did logistics and ops, um, for a few, a couple of years. Uh, I was only in for five years. Um, but yeah, wow. yeah, got to see a bit of the world, went to Afghanistan, which was interesting. And then yeah, yeah left where in 2011, so 10 years ago now, which is scary. Yeah. Is, is the army, um, my perception is that it's a very regimented, organized, disciplined lifestyle. Would you would you speak to that a little bit about the um, discipline? And do you have to make your bed in the morning and stuff like that? Is that all true? Yeah, like in basic training, it is. Once you finish training, you can do what you want. But okay, yeah, yeah. In basic training, it is like I think it was so ridiculous. We used to have to like get up at five o'clock in the morning, like make your bed stand in the corridor, drink a pint of water and sing the national anthem. <laughs> like, how, like, how long was basic training for? Uh, 11 months. We actually wow. only, had to do, we only had to do that bit, the singing the national anthem bit. I think it was five weeks, but it was so ridiculous. Wow, that's a, that's a pint of water. Did you say a pint every morning? Yeah. Five weeks singing that. I bet you knew the words off by your heart. By the, you could probably do it now. <laughs> You figured out there was more than one chorus, uh, one verse, so which not many people know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's pretty cool. Um, and do you what did you take away? Were there takeaways from being in the army, and what were they? Yeah, I'm sure like my time there has kind of shaped me to be able to like do all the planning and logistics and ops and you know, planning things like the jog and these other runs and stuff that I do it comes fairly naturally to me. Like I find it quite easy to be able to like go through that thought process of what I need to do and how I need to do it. Mm. Um, so that's, I think that's like a really like a positive thing from it. Mm. Um, it definitely installs that in you. Um, and I think that's probably like the biggest thing that I would take away. And then, you know, you end up like friends of mine that I went through basic training with, like one of the guys I was in training with sent me a message this week, actually. And I haven't spoken to him for like literally 10 years. Hmm. And then you can just like have this chat and it's like, yeah. it's so nice how it's like, you've kind of, you've got that bond of what you've kind of done together that you're still on the same page, even though your lives have gone in completely opposite directions, which yeah. I think is quite special. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I often, thought what would it have been like to join the army you know um i think being an ultra runner myself i have that i set out that discipline so i mm -hmm. have discipline in my life you know um and uh yeah 
Well, um, I didn't want to just go right away from Carbon X2 project. So what was the time uh, for the national 100K record that you were going after? So I wanted to see if I could do the British and the European. So the British record was 7.27 and the European record was 7.04. Mm -hmm. So I so basically, you had two goals to shoot for there. Yeah, I basically set out at seven hour pace to see mm -hmm. if I could do that. Oh, what is that in minutes per mile, if you know? It's six minutes 44 per mile. Yeah, so that's um, that's going some, isn't it? Um, th that's uh, that's pretty quick. Were you aware of your heart rate as well or um, no. at all? Were you just going no. by pace? Yeah. yeah, just I knew that was the pace that I had to do to get the record and it was either going to work or it was going to go horribly wrong and I'd have to drag my ass to the finish line. <laughs> I've got to say, you know, for people who want to go and have a look at what you looked like on the finish line, I, you know, you just got to YouTube your name and you look so good, honestly. To, and 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 uh, you, you smile and you sit down and guys go and have a look. It, it's pretty cool. Um, what did that pace feel like um, to you in terms of your comfort level? And had you done that in training? Yeah, so I'd done it loads in training. So like all those like 5K sessions that I was telling you about, all of them were actually done at like 10 to 15 seconds per K quicker than race pace. So I was actually very comfortable, um, like running that pace. Um, I would finish all my long runs at that pace. And yeah, when I started the race, yeah, it felt easy, mm. which was good. Yeah. Yeah. No, that needs to be, doesn't it? You know, you, you can't yeah. be in a uh, threshold. <laughs> Can I hold this yeah. for hundred K? Uh, yeah. What were the, what were the weather conditions like over? What was the weather like over there? Um, yeah, it was good. It was, it was a little bit windy, um, but it was about 14 degrees. Um, and actually it was like, I don't know how they planned it with the weather gods, but like a couple of days before the race, it was boiling hot. It was like 25 degrees. And then the day after the race was like torrential rain and it was oh, freezing. So it was awesome. like, yeah, it was like literally as good as we, like the wind, it was a bit too windy, but I would have taken that over the heat and the rain so yeah well talk about the the trip and the anticipation and the people that you met and how did it um feel to be part of you know the the hoka team and go over there and meet uh, di did you meet any people that you admire and, and and did you make friends over there what was it like yeah, it was really cool. I, it was the first race that I had done for Hoka. So, you know, for me, it was like, you know, quite a big thing. It was kind of the first time they would see me um, racing. Um, and yeah, it was it was very strange in the lead up to going like, you know, when you get like maranoia before a race where you're like paranoid that you're gonna like, lose a limb or catch a bowler or die like yeah. with COVID floating around you uh, it was just it wasn't a fun two weeks before and then waiting for my first COVID test before I was allowed to fly was quite nerve-wracking yeah. um, but I ended up having about seven COVID tests in 10 days so by the last one you're like yeah I think I'm all right um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah so that was all a bit a bit scary and then yeah getting out there it was quite strange to like think that you were like prepping for a race because it obviously hadn't happened for a little while yeah. um and yeah everyone else that I met was amazing like made the other guys like Audrey who was from France like I got on really well with her like she was really nice and Courtney um from the US so it was cool to like hang out with them hang out with them I'd never met them um yeah. before um, and some of the guys as well. Um, so yeah, it was, it was really fun to like meet some new people and like hang out and almost like socialize again, which we hadn't done for like quite a while. I mean, we were only either going for a run together, having dinner together and the rest of the time you were in your hotel room. Um, yeah. But like those little snippets of like hanging out with other humans was, was pretty cool. I quite enjoyed it. <laughs> fun times, yeah. Human beings again, yeah. Yeah. And so um, what was your, what time did the race start? What was your pre-race uh, meal? Uh, what was your pre-evening 
meal and stuff like that and and, and do you have any routines you do before you start a race so the pre-evening meal they decided to feed us this was the hotel sausage meat lasagna oh brilliant all the carbs you need right <laughs> Not yeah <laughs> and like sausage meat you're like why just give me some pasta it was a very bizarre meal it tasted as bad as it sounded um yeah it was not good and I wish I I was like I should have just got like a takeaway like yeah. a, like I'd normally before a race I'll have like a burger and chips and a milkshake like literally all the carbs but you just know a burger and chips is gonna work so yeah. Yeah. next time if they give me sausage meat lasagna I'm gonna go and just order a burger instead yeah. and then um yeah, the morning of the race, I just had porridge with, I think, apple or something in it. Pretty, pretty um, standard couple of cups of tea. And the race started at 7 a.m. Um, and because of the jet lag, I'd been waking up like the first couple of days, I'd been waking up at five o'clock in the morning. So I just kind of kept that going the rest of the week. So then when it came to the race day, I didn't have to get up early I, would, I just woke up naturally at five so that was quite nice not to have to like drag my ass out of bed um yeah. and then yeah did a little bit of a warm-up like I mean like a kilometer jog down yeah. the racetrack and, and back up just don't know shake the legs off I don't know what I was wasn't really warming up <laughs> didn't yeah. really need to um and then, yeah, I got onto the start line. They'd marked a little X where we all had to stand. We had to stand there with our masks on before the race started, yeah. um, which was a bit weird, um, but could take them off as soon as we had, I think we had to run 100 metres with them and then we could ditch them. So just speak about your nerves at that time and you're, um, you're standing with, um, um, uh, 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 what's the lady's name who has the record? Um, Camille Heron. Camille Heron. And you've yeah. got the French lady who you made friends with. What's her name? Sorry again. Audrey. Audrey, Tag. right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then you guys, you guys said, uh, was there other females there as well? Was how many females were in the race? There were six of us running in total, and okay. then we had seven pacemakers. Okay. So, how do you feel at that point? Just before, what describe your feelings? You know, when they're kind of counting down, and and what do you feel like? I was alright actually. Like. I felt surprisingly fine. I just wanted to go. You know, when you've like been building up for a race, I'd like, I guess I started to train for it in September. It's yeah. now the end of January. And I was like, I felt ready. And I was like, I just want to mm. want to go. Like, and, see, and, see what's going to happen for the rest of the day. <laughs> and so uh, I guess you've got the pace on your watch. And that's how you, so you start running because obviously the nerves and the anticipation often with American make you run that first mile quicker than you should. Were you regulating your pace from the get-go? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, we and we still went a little bit quick in the beginning, but you do that until you kind of settle into a rhythm. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I was I was watching the pace and I had two pacemakers with me as well who are also Oh sorry you did mention pacemakers yeah so had you told those pacemakers your personal pace and stuff like that yeah. Yeah. yeah so it was quite good um because there was seven pacemakers each of us had our own pacemaker and then there was one extra who would go with whoever was in the lead Oh okay and that was you Yeah for a while <laughs> Yeah yeah no but um were you um thinking strategy while you're running um you know you're in the lead and that's your pace that's your strategy because you're aiming for a certain time were you aware of anybody other anyone else's strategy and so on had you spoke to yeah them? I, yeah we had all chatted and i knew what all the other girls were aiming for but i guess this race was a little bit different because everyone had a time that they were going for mm -hmm. like i didn't care what position i came in like that was irrelevant to me um I just wanted to get a certain time. So mm. that's what I was aiming for. And yeah, I wanted everyone stuck to their own plans. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I suppose it's good. It's probably could take the nerves away a little bit because you're not racing against people. You're yeah. racing against a time and, and that time's personal. Um, well, uh, what? so what were the Carbon X2s like? And did, did I take it you'd trained in them before and what did they what did they feel like and stuff like that? Yeah, I'd been training in them, yeah, since about, I think I got a pair 
maybe in Novemberish time. So started to do all my tempo runs and my speed sessions in them. And yeah, I really like them. They're like, they're a super comfy shoe. They fit a lot nicer than the first version of the Carbon X. Um, So they're a lot more snug around your foot. And yeah, considering I was like running all day in them, like at the end, my feet didn't hurt and they normally do on like long runs. Um, So yeah, they... I mean, they were great. They were comfortable. They worked for me. Um, I think shoes are a little bit personal and you have to find the shoes that are right for you. But luckily, these ones seem to be right for me. So I'll take that. Yeah, you also did the training though in them as well. And did you arrive at the start line with them at mile zero or did you put like 50 miles in them or something? I think I'd done like 25K. So what's that? Like 15 miles? Oh yeah, I'm working in miles. Yeah, 25. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah. So literally I did my last tempo session in them. Yeah. Yeah. So then, no hot spots or anything like that. Well, know. so, you know, how do you feel then? Um, because failure in our dictionary doesn't exist anymore. Right. So <laughs> what, what did you learn from this experience? Uh, the hundred K, um, you know, in America specifically. Yeah. So, I went out to try and do seven hours and that was like the goal. Um, But after about, I guess, about 40K, I could start to feel that my left leg was getting a little bit sore. And I was like, oh, that's a bit weird. Um, And it was getting like heavier and heavier. And as the race was going on, I couldn't lift my leg properly in my stride. So I was like, "Uh, okay, this is not going to end well. And I knew kind of, after about 60k I was like all right this is going to be a day of like dragging myself to the finish line um and I could slowly see my pace dropping I knew that I was no longer going to get those records like I knew that was going to happen um and I was just waiting for the rest of the girls to start going past me so I think Audrey came past me at about 70k um and then yeah slowly after that the other girls went past and then I ended up finishing in eight hours and one minute mm-hmm. um so like an hour off what I wanted to do yeah my work my leg was like in a world of pain I was just like this is ridiculous um and it was a bit annoying because when I finished like I wasn't tired like because I was slowed down because of my leg so it was this weird feeling like my legs were battered but I was all right um so I knew that there was something wrong and I just had to kind of figure out what it was so when I got back to the UK I went to see the physio and he didn't really know what was wrong he's like oh it looks like you've got compartment syndrome like my left leg was really swollen um but he didn't really know what it was so I went to the osteo and as soon as I went in to see her like I went in not being able to really like lift my knee to 90 degrees she started looking at me she's like um you've got a trapped nerve in your back I was like really she's like yep so she like manipulated my spine um all the way from the top of my skull all the way down to my pelvis hopped off the table and could lift my leg to 90 degrees again I was like that's insane (laughs) so I'd had a trapped nerve in my back which was basically resulted in like some blood pooling in my leg and swelling and it basically just gave me a dead leg because the signals weren't getting to my leg to like increase blood flow. Yeah. So it was good that I was like, okay, at least there was a reason that I was shit. And <laughs> you know, you weren't, you weren't shit. Yeah. Wow. Um, you know, there was a reason because I was like, everything had gone so well that I was like, I know that I'm capable of doing that. And it was annoying me that I couldn't figure out what it was, but it was about 10 days later we'd got to the bottom of it and it's taken until this week now I still felt like I had a dead leg um for about a month um and swelling is nearly gone down in my quad Mm -hmm. and it's a bit annoying because like looking back I the my pelvis and my lower back had been a bit sore for about a month before the race Mm -hmm. but it wasn't really very sore and it wasn't stopping me running so I was like it must just have been increased mileage, but 
I guess from doing all these long runs, like my pain threshold is slightly skewed where it takes quite a lot of pain to make me stop. So I've got to kind of remember that because clearly it backfired on this run. And, you know, it's a bit of a learning curve that actually I need to go to the osteo in the lead up to races and just make sure everything's in the right place and where it should be. Um, And those little, like, you know, it's great when you can reflect and be like, okay, actually there was something wrong. I just didn't think it was that bad. But actually when it's not that bad on a two hour run, when it becomes an eight hour run, it becomes quite bad. (laughs) So yeah, it was, it was good to kind of, to get to the bottom of it and be like, you know, it's a massive confidence boost because I'm like, I know I can run at that pace. I just have to get everything right on the day. And like someone said to me, it's taken Jim Wormsley four attempts to get 11 seconds off the record. Mm. Uh, And I was like, yeah, that was my first proper attempt at trying. So, you know, there's plenty more opportunities to give it another bash. And now I know that that training cycle works for me. Yeah, I just have to do like the body maintenance stuff in the lead up next time. So is that the key to staying um, trap nerve free, the, the body maintenance, like mobility and stuff? What, what, what have you got to do? Yeah, so I actually, I saw Katie again this week and asked her exactly that. I'm like, what, you know, why did that happen? And we pretty much think it was just like an increase in volume. Um, so it was probably, I ran more miles last year than I ever have before. Um, so I think, you know, that's definitely a factor and, you know, just doing like, there's some hamstring and spinal exercises that I have to do now. Like I do yoga and strength and conditioning every week anyway. So I know I've got that mobility in there, but there's like a few little targeted things that I can do. Yeah. And as well, like I'm sitting at a desk more now than I have been because I've just started my own business. So I think getting a standing desk and doing things like that where I'm not sat down all day will also also help. Yeah, yeah, look at I'm I'm standing right now. It works just fine. You know, you can even actually massage out your foot if you've got a spike. (laughs) Bit of multitasking. (laughs) Yeah, they say men can't multitask. They actually can. What's um, what's the rest of the year look like? I mean, it's early days. No one really knows what the rest of the year looks like. However, what do you anticipate the rest of the year will look like for you with your running and so on? Yeah, so in my ideal world this year, I want to go back out to America at the end of April to try and qualify for Western States. So Western States is at the end of June, but in that race in April, I have to come top two. So is that a golden ticket race? Yeah, golden ticket, 100k canyons. Um, So it's a little bit different to Carbon X where you have to place. It's not on time. So Hmm. a bit about tactics, this one, I guess. Yeah. And then, yeah, Western States. Maybe if I qualify, um, I've got a couple of ultra X races, one in Scotland in May, depending on what happens with Western States, I might do their world champs in June. Um, but if I qualify for Western States, I'll probably do ultra trail Snowden, um, instead the 50 K is like a, a good training run. Yeah. And then in July, I want to go and do the GR10, which is a route that goes across the Pyrenees from the Atlantic to the Med, try and set an FKT doing that. And then I got rejected from the UTMB ballot yesterday. Oh, was it yesterday? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I tried to enter the CTC for that, but didn't get in. But then I've got Tempelias, which is a race out in France at the end of October. Yeah. And... There's the 50K and the 24-hour champ, like world champs this year as well. So I might try to see if I can get a spot on one of those teams if they go ahead, which would be pretty cool. Yeah, good. It sounds like you've got a full calendar. It sounds exciting, especially Western States, from Mm -hmm. my opinion, is a very exciting um, race uh, held in America. predominantly downhill which is how cool is that you know downhill trail hunting no i've not done it i'm a i think i'm a five-time year loser in the lottery um (laughs) which is good because you've got to build up those tickets you do you know know, uh, i got loads of tickets now 
Uh, well, hey, it's been really good ch to chat to you and thanks for your time. And, you know, you, like I said, uh, any, everyone listening, go and have a look at the, the YouTube, go and watch the LeJog video and, and watch Carla coming across the finish line because that really captured my imagination of just, you sit down on the chair and you put your head back and you look around and you just seem really pleasant. And um, yeah, I, I, I appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you. It was lovely to chat to you. And yeah. yeah, I look forward to seeing your adventures this year. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Is there anyone, um, is there any, you said you've started up your own business and is there any, is there anything you want to, anyone you want to shout out to or highlight your own business and so on before we just, uh, we go here? Yeah. If anyone fancies doing some strength conditioning yoga for runners, um, you can just pop over to my website, carlamolinaro.com forward slash SCY all the infos on there. It's designed for runners and for our attention spans. So it's not that long, but it's good for you. <laughs> and yeah, you can find me on probably Instagram's the best thing, just Carla Molinaro. Wow, what a trip. It was so good talking to Carla Molinaro. She's awesome. She's really inspirational. I didn't even know she was in the army, you know? So I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did my conversation talking to Carla. Um, little story, I was out running. Uh, I did a long run over the weekend and I was on the North Downs Way and there was a, a fellow running in my direction. And he stopped and he said, hey, Christian, how are you doing? And I couldn't believe he actually, he's a, he, he listens to the podcast. That's the first time that's ever happened. I thought, wow, he uh, stopped to say hi. So he commented on my run afterwards. So hi, big thanks to uh, Headley Humphrey for um, saying hi on the Appalachian, uh, sorry, on the Appalachian Trail. I got the AT on my mind always. Uh, actually, talking about the Appalachian Trail, our next guest um, on the podcast is... Don Hudson from the International Appalachian Trail. He'll be on the show. I just recorded with him today. I just got to edit it. And uh, he's going to come on the show. Um, and, and he talks all about trails, uh, his um, experience out in nature, First Nation people in America. And it's a really insightful interview i think um into the mind of a 70 year old who's spent and been inspired by nature in his life and made it his profession and his passion uh, anyone interesting online run coaching go and check out my website www.christianultra christian with a k ultra with you christianultra.com and uh that's it go and check it out and uh and, and if you like the show, give me a thumbs up, share it with your friends. And until next time, have a great week.